There's no better time to make your home feel safer. And this week, Simply Safe is giving Myths and Legends listeners early access to their Black Friday deals. That's 50% off their award-winning home security. Hop online, customize your system in minutes, and get peace of mind with a complete home security system starting at just over $100. From indoor and outdoor cameras to comprehensive sensors, it's all monitored around the clock by Simply Safe's trained professionals, who are also there if you need help along the way. Take advantage of Simply Safe's early Black Friday deals and get 50% off your new home security system by visiting simplysafe.com/legends. Again, that's simplysafe.com/legends for 50% off your entire system. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a tale from Argentina about a micromanaging captain, a lot of hungry people, and a puma mom. Then, on the creature of the week, it's a shape-shifting water monster that'll make you wonder if any human on the beach is really who you think they are. This is Myths and Legends, episode 248. Beast Tartar Can't Go Far. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's episode hails from Argentinian folklore, where a lot happens to our main character. She's a young woman from Spain, in a new place, and we join her as she stands in the middle of the camp, thinking. It's a scary thing to watch the world around you shrink, to see it close in on every side until you can hardly move. The young Señorita Maldonado had seen enough. She had come to Argentina along with a whole group from Spain, no one had anticipated just how much of a micromanager their captain would turn out to be. It was probably mid-voyage when it became clear, but by then they were halfway across the Atlantic, by boat, and there was absolutely no going back. Every detail of everyone's job seemed forever under his thumb. The only way anyone got anything done was by people sneaking in work when they thought the boss wasn't looking. The captain's most recent order, however, had been over the top. They had been in Argentina for months at this point. They had set up camp, and it was not going well. Sure, the local people had their intruding encampments surrounded, and yes, it meant they could no longer access semi-important things like food. And true, her neighbors had taken to panic-eating what scraps they could find, chewed holes in their own boots, and munched on roots for dinner. There was even that family on the other side of camp that had tried to arrange rats on cute little hors d'oeuvre trays last week. It was all anyone could talk about for days. Great job on the plating, but they lost points for taste, because they were rats. No matter how creative, however, no food substitute seemed to do the trick. And all the Spaniards' bellies rumbled and ached. And now the captain had declared that no one was allowed to even try to do anything about their dire situation. Well, not without his permission. But everyone knew that meant not in your lifetime. For several weeks... Plenty of hunters had gone out and not returned. Or if they did come back, they were no longer breathing. Usually ended up on that one family's hors d'oeuvre trays. Yeah, stuff got dark for the colonists. When you're eating your friends and neighbors, you kind of struggle to think about how things could possibly be worse. Well, the captain had ideas. He gathered everyone together for an announcement. So many had been lost that anyone who left to find food without the captain's permission would be hanged. 
He wanted to keep them safe so badly that he was going to kill them for trying to survive because he cared for them so much. Maldonado recognized this as a death sentence, a guaranteed slow death. It was a terrible idea and also one that could have been avoided altogether had the captain given up trying to, you know, enslave the local people. That sort of thing was never well received, but seeing as it was on the captain's shared to-do list with the higher-ups, he'd been unwilling to change course, and now everyone was starving and would be dead soon. Signorita Maldonado shuddered at the sight of an older gentleman slurping up a leather shoelace noodle. Ugh, no amount of sauce would make that appetizing. No, this would not be her future. And so, while the captain and all the settlers were busy trading scraps of non-edibles, the young woman balled her fist, slipped out through a gap in the wall of stakes, and disappeared into the trees. It was her first time beyond camp, and the new land was wild and exciting in a scary, bewildering sort of way. Small critters skittered about, unseen masses called out to one another, and large, thundering creatures like ostriches crashed out of nowhere, heading somewhere fast. It was so all-encompassing that she almost forgot about the stabbing pains in her stomach. Almost. Signorita Maldonado trekked through the jungle, urged on by the call of her stomach, and before long, she began following the path of the river. Along the sandy bank, she found a half-eaten piece of fruit. Swatting away a fly, she picked it up, took in the sweet scent of the flesh, and pretty much ate it whole. This, this was why she'd risked the outside world. Rotten fruit, yum. But dying with a full stomach was definitely better than dying with an aching belly, after maybe eating one of your friends, right? It was, she told herself out loud. All along the bank, she skipped from one leftover piece of fruit to the other, and by twilight, she had eaten quite the progressive fruit salad. Oh, but now it was twilight. Light was fading fast, and she could only imagine the long claws and fangs that emerged after the heat of the day. Worse, Maldonado had forgotten to save any of her findings to soften the blow of her outlaw behavior back at camp. Well, there was no time to worry about that now. If she didn't move, there wouldn't be anything left to hang anyway. So priority number one for now would be getting back to camp in one piece. She jogged off through the trees, trying her best to ignore the multitude of snarls and growls that seemed to follow her every step along the way, just outside of her vision between the darkened trees. Maldonado ran as fast as she could, but eventually she stopped for a breather, bent over with hands resting on her knees. Her throat burned all the way down into her chest, and she stood and interlocked her fingers across the top of her head. When she was welcomed back at camp and not hanged, and they had enough food and reached an equilibrium with the locals, maybe she'd start a fitness class. Just then, something large and furry, described as, quote, things in the original tale, ran past the young woman and brushed against her arm. Startled, Maldonado took off in the opposite direction, away from the path she had first taken. Through the dimming light, she sprinted, gasping for air, and that was when the cave caught her eye. Realistically, it was her best choice, and so Signorita Maldonado ducked inside and sank against the wall, pulling her legs in tight against her chest. It would be a long night. 
she felt safer tucked away against the rock wall. Only, she wasn't the only one who had that idea. For a while, she'd rocked gently against the wall, reviewing her options for the following morning. Should she try to sneak back into camp as though she'd never left? Was it better to announce her return and explain that she'd only been trying to help and, hey, here's where you can find food that isn't people? In her time in the forest, she hadn't encountered any of the people of the Quarandi tribe in whose land they had set up their camp. And perhaps it was safer out here than her captain thought. With her mind made up, Maldonado looked out on the night sky from the edge of the cave. Above, countless stars glittered and danced. It really was beautiful. Slowly, her blinks began growing longer and longer, and her eyelids heavier and heavier. Maybe she would be able to sleep after all. As sleep began to take hold, Maldonado turned and noticed two more stars in the back of the cave. Green ones. Huh. They were beautiful too. Then she froze. <sighs> Wait. Her eyes snapped open, and as the pair of stars watched her, she realized that they weren't stars at all. They were the eyes of a full-grown puma, and it let loose a low, menacing growl. Was it better to be ripped apart by something you couldn't see and therefore couldn't identify? Like, would being eaten by a puma feel less horrific if you couldn't picture it feasting on you? These were the questions that Señorita Maldonado asked herself in those split seconds of realization that she caved up with a real-life hungry puma. However, as the young woman hunched there, waiting for the eyes to grow bigger and be overtaken by teeth and claws and everything to go dark, another realization came. The puma was not moving. It was alive, but as Maldonado's eyes grew accustomed to the darkness, she realized that the puma was a mom. A recent one, too, a very recent one. At her side, two cubs squiggled and squirmed in search of food. The mother's growl took on a mournful tone as the pair of green eyes turned away. The next cub was stuck. Beast Tartare was certainly a new dish for Señorita Maldonado. But the classic sayings, beggars can't be choosers, and humans living with pumas are lucky to just be alive, came to mind. And so the young woman came to find that raw meat wasn't as bad as it first sounded. It was better than human tenderloin, which, yeah, terrifyingly low bar, but here she was. In that moment after the mother's pain, Maldonado had moved swiftly and instinctively, with her own skirt, she cleaned off the newborn cubs and helped the puma deliver the third. After that, who knew what would happen next? In the hours that followed, though she was still pretty uneasy with the pumas, she did sleep, and she was startled awake just as the puma returned with a recent kill. She padded softly into the cave and dropped a limp creature at Maldonado's feet. A kindness for a kindness, all the way out here in the wilderness. For several days, the unexpected family lived in the cave. Mama Puma brought raw meat, and eventually Maldonado ventured outside on occasion to collect berries and stray fruit. There was a rhythm to her life with the Pumas. After that first night, she knew that she was safe with them. They all slept in one big pile for warmth, and she would pet the cubs as they purred. And yet, deep down, a piece of her former life remained and the people of that life might be looking for her. And one cool morning, 
while Maldonado was gathering fruit by the river, someone did come looking for her, but it wasn't her fellow Spaniards. A spear tip pressed sharply into the back of her neck, and she dropped the fruit in the gravel by the river. They gripped her arm, spinning her around. They studied her, and spoke in hushed voices to one another, in a language she didn't understand. All the while, she looked them over too. Hunters. Maldonado's tattered clothes, which were probably covered in puma fur despite her best efforts, were a dead giveaway to who she was and what her presence represented. The hunters grabbed her hands and began leading her away, away from her own camp, but more importantly, away from the pumas. She didn't even get to say goodbye or thank you. We'll see that you should keep your friends close and your pumas closer, but that will be right after this. For most of the day, the locals left her tied in the center of their village. The original story says that they were a band from the Quirandi tribe, the same tribe that currently surrounded the Spanish colonists. It was obvious that this young woman had come from the enemy. Everyone, young and old, crowded around to have a good look at the mysterious captive. Little girl snuck up behind her to stroke her hair and marvel at the newcomer before she could turn her head. It was an exciting game with the woman who feared for her life. Young men hung farther back and marveled just the same. From her vantage point in the center of the village, Maldonado could see the deliberation. Some gestured toward the Spanish camp with passion in their voices. Others pointed toward the girl with a softer tone. Pity. Then, one man approached with a knife. Senorita Maldonado winced. This was it. She would finally have an answer to the question of whether or not it was best to see the blow that killed you. But then the man began sawing at the ropes instead. Moments later, her hands were free. For hours, the crowd had looked upon her with a mix of curiosity, disdain, and pity. But now it was just dispersing. Maldonado looked around, confused. What? What was happening? One of them approached. It was their leader, she assumed, the one who boomed the final decree. He spoke her language. The people had decided, he told her. She would be permitted to stay with them. Unharmed, Maldonado felt her knees and thanked him. After that, Maldonado walked freely around camp. She quickly found a place in this community, too, doing whatever job needed to be done. She was a quick study and picked up the language. And as she started to find a rhythm in her new life, she felt happy. But she couldn't help thinking about the Pumas. If it wasn't for them, she wouldn't have survived that first night in the forest or many of the nights that followed. She made sure to greet the hunters every time they returned. And week after week, she was relieved to find that the Pumas were not among their quarry. They were still out there. Safe. As for Maldonado... Her food was plenty, cooked, and not people. Life was good. Unfortunately, the peace would not last. Trouble was coming, and it arrived like a thief in the night. That is, if a thief had made a resolution to start waking up early and struck during the day, when half the village was out hunting. The Spaniards had somehow maneuvered their captain's convoluted paperwork system to send forth a small, gaunt, and terribly hungry party into the woods in search of food, resources, anything. The party had found the local village, 
and watched it for days until they knew when the hunters would be out. Maldonado heard the screams and the all-too-common sounds of flintlock rifles, but these weren't off in the distance. These were right outside. She sat up to yell an alarm, but the people were gone. Everyone was gone. Though the colonists were outnumbered 20 to 1, the people in the village didn't know that. The Spanish had made enough noise from the trees and fired their weapons, making it look like a fighting force multiple times their size was advancing. With the hunters away, the best move was to run, protect the vulnerable, and regroup. The Spanish might be able to hit a town, but they would be horribly outmatched in the forest, and they knew it, which was how Maldonado awoke to a nearly empty village. But Maldonado knew a few things. She knew that the resupply wasn't coming for months, that was part of the problem, and that the people had the Spanish surrounded, and that the colonists were not equipped for war. What was going on? She was working everything out when she found herself standing face to face with one of her former shipmates. It was the small party's turn to be surprised. Uh, hey, Senorita Maldonado! Man, everyone thought she died a long time ago when she didn't show up for that one family's hors d'oeuvre party. Well, alive, that is. Everyone showed up one way or another, either to eat the hors d'oeuvres or become them, yeah, it's, it's still very dark back home. How are you, though? The soldier said, holding his gun like a guitar. I don't know how you managed to get the green light from the captain to be way out here. That, that's awesome, though. The others nodded in agreement. They were so glad to see her alive. Maldonado feigned a smile. Yeah, about that. She tried to start explaining the situation, but the party was too overjoyed to listen. Looping their arms around hers, they began to walk back to camp, eager to show the captain and the others that Señorita Maldonado was very much no longer dead. For the second time, the young woman sat tied and awaiting her fate. Everyone had been overjoyed to see her, and with such full cheeks and vigor, they kept saying, fruit, berries, beast, tartar, they knew what two of those things were, but they were eager to try her radiant new diet from the woods. Her skin positively glowed. It was like she wasn't eating boots like the rest of them. The captain strode out, shooing everyone away who was catching up with Maldonado. She dies, he barked. The people gasped. What? Why? She knew where the food was and had befriended the surrounding people. Maybe peace was possible after all. The captain shook his head. She broke the rules, my rules. And she will hang, as will everyone else who disobeys my orders. It was then that Maldonado spoke up. I was hungry, she yelled. Part of her had been convinced that the captain would ultimately show leniency on account of their dire circumstances. But now she realized that she was wrong. Already, he produced a thick rope from the inside of his coat. Struggling to her knees, Maldonado beseeched the captain. To stay was a death sentence. She had gone out to find food, and she'd been successful. Just look at her, she was alive. The captain shook his head, she'd broken the rules, and he could not let that slide. What came next? Casual Fridays where people didn't have to wear wool in the jungle? An hour off once a week? Ridiculous. This was his camp, and he was in control. He was protecting his people. In that moment, Maldonado's panic turned to anger. 
important realization. Not only was their captain a poor leader, he was cruel. Wild beasts, pumas, hardworking local villagers, all these things the captain feared. And yet, out there beyond camp, they had all shown her kindness, more kindness than the micromanaging captain was now willing to give. Over the next few minutes, the young woman shared all about her recent adventure. The food, the puma, the villagers. A murmur grew among the people. One person pointed out all the truth that she was dropping, and the people agreed with her. The captain was being cruel. He was cruel. He was all rules and no heart. An orders are orders kind of guy. No wonder his best friend is a stack of forms. Someone shouted out from the back to much laughter. But then things grew serious. Fingers came out and they all pointed at the captain. He was like a murderous, colonial, unfunny Michael Scott. Like season one Michael Scott. With the season one Michael Scott comparison, the captain could see that he was losing control of the situation. The show was still finding its voice and imitating the British version. He had to get the situation back in hand. Selfish self-preservation was literally his only skill. So he decided to turn the people's dissent into positive PR. He would not hang Maldonado, even though she deserved it. Like, he couldn't stress enough how much she deserved to die because she'd broken the rules that a large man in the front row with a spear resting on his shoulder cleared his throat. Understood, acknowledged the captain. Instead of hanging, Señorita Maldonado would be strapped to a tree outside the camp that night to be torn apart and eaten by the wild beasts of the woods. He smiled. And they shouldn't say he never gave them anything. It was such a kind gesture, such a compassionate adjustment to the young woman's sentencing that the people praised their captain and headed over to the one family's tent to celebrate social progress with some invisible hors d'oeuvres. But in the center of camp, Maldonado sank onto her heels. So, she would die after all. Also, all these people were really easy to win over, like, wow, since when he's being torn apart by wild animals better than hanging? When she looked up, the captain was staring at her with a smirk. Without a word, he turned and disappeared behind the flap of his tent. We'll see Señorita Maldonado's ultimate fate, but that, once again, will be right after this. Uh, sir, a word? In his tent, the captain looked up and motioned the pair inside. For several days, morale at the camp had been low, the mood somber, and the conversations held to a minimum. Bodies busied themselves watching this, straightening that, but all the minds thought only of Señorita Maldonado. Her absence from camp, her lack of screams out in the woods, and the captain's latest order, it all cast a great shadow over the survivor's existence. After the first night of Maldonado's punishment, several people had asked the captain for permission to check on her, to see if she was still alive, but the answer had been no. Anyone who dared disobey the captain would be hanged, he had said, and all knew that there would be no leniency this time. Then, for days upon days, the answer remained the same, and by now, the young woman was surely dead. Please, let us go to her so we can put all this behind us, pleaded one. Like, we know how this ends, but just let us have closure. 
let us know for sure, urged another. And so the captain finally relented and stamped his approval that a few should be allowed to go check on the body. He did it on those awesome triplicate forms he brought all the way from Spain, the ones he never got to use, you know, on account of everyone dying because he took up so much space with the triplicate forms. The pair thanked the captain, left the tent, and headed for the edge of camp. Along the way, they passed by that one family's tent, and just before it was out of view, a woman holding up a fancy tray burst out of the flap, asking if the couple could bring her back a sweet morsel for the party. Too dark? Too dark. Sorry. Safe trip? Or not? The couple gripped each other's arms and hands as they crept silently to the trees where the captain had left Señorita Maldonado. It would be gruesome, they told themselves. So be prepared. Take deep breaths. Remain calm. One shielded their eyes and screamed, and the other froze. They had found the young woman all right. Just before they neared, an enormous puma sprang from the bushes, growled, and disappeared through the trees. The couple had fallen on their backs in alarm, hoping against all hope that they wouldn't join the creature's piles of leftovers by the tree, but when they sat up, they saw with their own eyes that there weren't leftovers at all. Inside Señorita Maldonado's bonds was Señorita Maldonado, and in her hands, she held... Beast tartar, she said happily. It's an acquired taste, but sure beats a plate full of nothing. It was astonishing. After they shared a bite to eat, the couple untied the young woman and walked beside her back to camp. Along the way, they coached her on her big reveal. Surviving wild beasts for days on end was a miraculous feat, and so maybe she should, you know, lead with her fantastic adventure this time. Sure enough, Maldonado's tale about how the Mama Puma had come to her aid, fending off all the hungry beasts and bringing her fresh kills to eat, day after day, really played well with the crowd and she revealed, to gasps, that it was the very same puma she'd cared for in the cave. You should see her cubs, they're growing like weeds, she shared. Her story closed to a standing ovation. A new line of merch and a scheduled live tour. No one had ever heard or seen anything like it before. And like a flock of birds changing directions in the open sky, the crowd promptly turned on the captain, who was still kind of low-key pushing, hanging the girl. Could he not show as much kindness to Maldonado as a wild puma? Was that really so much to ask? The crowd became so overwhelmed and passionate that the captain, with his back pressed against a literal tent wall, conceded and let it be publicly known that he would drop all the charges against Señorita Maldonado. The large man at the front of the crowd set down his spear. The crowd erupted into cheers and celebrations like never before and Señorita Maldonado slipped into the sea of people with a grin. She was finally back. And she stayed this time, outliving the captain and becoming something of a legend herself. One version I found said that she helped found the city of Asuncion and that Maldonado Uruguay was named after her, which does not appear to be remotely true. It was apparently named after the lieutenant of an explorer who stayed there when the explorer went home. It's a nice thought, though. Regardless, the story of Señorita Maldonado stands as a testament to courage, kindness, and that the people on the other side of the wall might not be as scary as you think. You know, if you're not trying to conquer them. Next week, 
we're telling two stories of sorcerer's apprentices, and we'll learn about maybe why you don't want to major in talking to animals at your local wizard school. If you'd like to support the show, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a multicolored mop slipper shoe cover that you and nine party guests can fit over your shoes to clean while you socialize, you can get bonus episodes and ad-free versions of the show that won't turn your slippers into actual slip hazards and put your guests to work. Check out mythpodcast.com slash membership for more info. The creature this week is the Wani from Japanese folklore. The Wani is a powerful, shape-shifting water monster that rules the waters of the deep. Capable of taking on human form, it lives in large coral castles with plenty of living space for its snake-like body and multiple fins. And there's not just one, either. There are actually lots of Wani in the world, all operating a very strict chain of command. At the top, you have the Owatsumi, the dragon king of the sea. We've talked about him before. If you've ever seen the tide change, you've witnessed the effect of his, quote, tide jewels. One of the main stories around the Wani goes like this. There was once a set of brothers, demigods, named Huri and Huderi. Huderi had a special fishing hook, and one day, he let Huri borrow it. Only, Huri ended up losing it in the ocean, and he had to take a trip underwater. He swam deeper and deeper, and eventually, he met the Dragon King, Watatsumi, a Wani. With the king's help, Huri found the lost hook, but that wasn't all he found. Deep in the currents of the underwater kingdom, Huri found love. Toyotama Hime was the king's daughter, and after they fell in love, the pair married. For three years, they lived under the sea until Huri realized he missed land, the sun, home. The pair said goodbye to everyone, moved to the surface, and finally returned Hoderi's fishing hook. It was during this time that Toyotama Hime had the couple's first child. And here's where things took a different turn. Remember, Toyotama Hime was a Wani, a shape-shifting water monster with a very non-human natural form, one that her husband Huri had never seen. Well, when Toyotama Hime was about to give birth, she asked Huri to look away, to not look at her, because she had to be in her true form to give birth. Huri agreed, but also kind of lied. Partway through labor, curiosity got the better of him, and he snuck a peek. Toyotama Hime was so disappointed, distraught, and betrayed by Huri, going against his word, that after the baby arrived, she up and left. She didn't take the baby either. Word traveled, and sometime later, the mother's sister came to the surface to help raise the young boy. Her name was Tamayori, and after she'd raised the boy, they got married, yes, aunt and nephew. Some say their son, Jimu, became the first emperor of Japan. So yeah, lots to unbox there. But on the lighter side, next time you're snorkeling in the ocean, be wary of falling in love. Because you never know which humans might actually be Awani. My guess is the ones that are breathing underwater, but hey, what do I know? That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is a podcast by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hold up. 